Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, and I'm Rajesh Manwani from Julius Bear, and welcome to our second podcast on blockchain and cryptocurrencies. In our earlier episode, we explored the very essentials, what they are, how they came about, and how they work in practice. We also introduced blockchain components like smart contracts and tokens that operate on blockchains with some built-in programming. Today, we will explore whether cryptocurrencies in particular are likely to become the future of money and of data. In this exploration, I'm rejoined by Dan Liebau of Lightbulb Capital. Hello, Dan. Hey. And also by Alexander Ruchti, Julius Baer's next-generation research analyst and our resident expert on this topic. He has written an excellent report recently on this exciting yet controversial subject. Delighted to have you on, Alex. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Rajesh. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, in order to understand any elaborate system, for example, when we go about building a house, it's always helpful to start with its architecture. So let's try and do that for the world of cryptocurrencies. Now, it might be a little technical, so just do stay with us as we talk through the basic ground rules that govern how a blockchain operates. These are called consensus mechanisms. And as foundations to a building, they are crucial to further our understanding. Alex, can you tell us about consensus mechanisms and why they matter? The consensus mechanism is kind of like the beating heart of every blockchain. So no cryptocurrency or no other type of blockchain can operate without a hard-coded consensus mechanism in it. It defines how the networks decide which sort of transactions should be considered valid and which ones should just be ignored. There are a wide variety of consensus mechanisms, but they all aim to answer one fundamental issue. So without having a centralized authority, can we create a mechanism in which we can have trust in a system without really having to trust in individual actors that operate in that system. Right. And what are the different types of consensus mechanisms out there? So there there are quite a few of them out there. And the most prominent one, the biggest one, that's proof of work. That's what Bitcoin uses, for example, Litecoin and many other coins use that as well. And that is the consensus mechanism, which is pretty compute intensive. So whenever you hear about the the massive carbon footprint of cryptos or see pictures of huge warehouses that are filled with computers that are diligently crunching numbers all day, that's proof of work. Another bigger mechanism is proof of stake, which doesn't require the computing power that is needed for proof of work. And proof of stake uses a randomized workflow where individuals that have bigger wealth in in crypto kind of get a higher chance of getting allocated the next block. But besides that, there are a number of 
other mechanisms out there. There's proof of capacity where depending on if you have a lot of storage space on your hard drive, you get the say on how the, the next block is created. There are a lot of different consensus mechanisms out there. However, proof of work and, and proof of stake, those are the two biggest ones and those are the ones that uh, people focus on the most right now. Right, right. So it feels to me that it's like the early days of the internet with a lot of jostling on on which of these mechanisms will emerge successful. Then what do you think will be the dominant consensus approach going forward? Mm. So I think it's going to be proof of stake. We recently did a little bit of analysis and we looked at the 68 different smart contract platforms that are out there. And as a matter of fact, most of them use proof of stake or a form of proof of stake. As Alex already said, the energy consumption issue is really serious on the proof of work side. Yeah. And there's also criticism of proof of stake, right? So not everyone agrees that is a very secure system. But I've recently read a paper, actually came out earlier this year, entitled Blockchain Without Waste, Proof of Stake. And it's written by an economist that actually proves that if you design proof of stake well, it does incentivize people well enough to reach, reach the consensus. So that's good. Okay. And what do you think, Alex? Well, Dan makes a lot of very good and valid points. So on average, we, we really see that proof of stake is a better solution than proof of work. But besides the point that Dan just made about the decentralization, proof of stake potentially also has a, another issue with it. And that is basically because of how the consensus mechanism works, the more coins you have, the higher your chance to generate the next block, meaning the higher the chance there is that you get the block reward. So in effect, proof of stake has a built-in inequality drive to it. And so in our current day and age, there is already a lot of question about inequality in the world. And proof of stake kind of inherently has a drive to get more inequality in the system just by design. So uh, the points Dan makes are, are really good. Yeah, and the inequality is also probably a slightly unintended consequence of the mechanism. Alex, in your recent report, you have very nicely visualized an important point. That is the trilemma with current blockchain technologies. A trilemma having three difficult choices. Can you please share more? So for cryptocurrencies to really be able to replace our financial systems, they need to be three things and they need to be three things at the same time. So they need to be safe. So you need to be able to trust that transactions that are recorded there are, are valid transactions that that no one puts in fake transactions. It needs to be scalable. So the blockchain needs to do many transactions per second. And it needs to be decentralized. So the entire point of blockchain and cryptocurrency is how can we build a system where we don't need to trust in central authorities anymore? So the decentralization is a corner aspect that also needs to be fulfilled. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And how would you characterize today's popular platforms uh, and how they fare on this trilemma? Well, let's take the most famous cryptocurrency, so, so Bitcoin. That one relies on proof of work. And when you look at it through the, the eyes of the blockchain trilemma, then you see that, that Bitcoin does two out of the three things really well and struggles massively on the third. So it, it is very good at the security aspect. Decentralization is definitely given, 
But when you look at uh, the throughput of the Bitcoin blockchain itself, you see that the system only manages somewhere in the area of 5 to 15 transactions per second. Now, if you look at uh, well-known payment providers, like if you look at Visa and MasterCard, they're already doing thousands of transactions per second. That's a huge gap, right? Yeah, it's a massive gap. And then what people try to do with Bitcoin is to build solutions around the network, layer two solutions. But then you go away from the blockchain, which potentially then brings the security into question. So then again, the trilemma, you you don't really get it right on all those aspects in, in one single solution. Right. And what about the others like Ethereum? Yeah, so Ethereum is a very interesting case because right now Ethereum also relies on on proof of work, meaning that it has the exact same situation concerning the trilemma right now. So the security is great, decentralization is given, but the scalability is also rather questionable. So there with Ethereum, we're currently roughly around 15 transactions per second. And again, that's, uh, that doesn't work as a global payment system. What's interesting right now with Ethereum is that they're currently in the process of shifting away from proof of work. So they're shifting towards a uh, proof of stake mechanism. So what Dan previously highlighted, and that they say it's going to solve the scalability aspect. But then we're again at the question, is it going to be really and, and truly decentralized when it arrives at its proof-of-stake solution in probably still a, a few years' time? That's very helpful. Dan, do you think this trilemma will be much better solved in the future? Time to take out your crystal ball. In what kind of time frame, if at all, you think this will happen? And which platforms you reckon are closer to solving this trilemma? So... As the name suggests, right, Trilemma is not easy to solve. And I'd be very careful if any project proclaims that they have finally resolved it, because it's a little bit like with physics, right? This is really hard. What I would suggest, though, is that we really look at these systems while they're being used in production before we build or invest in them, because there can be a lot of claims when the systems are not live yet. And they all claim the same thing, right? They will all say, we've, we've finally done away with the Trilemma. I think in terms of new platforms, I think Polkadot is a very interesting platform, but it might take between two to five years until these systems are so mature that they can really be used at very, very large scale. Okay, now given we call them cryptocurrencies, let's talk about their exchange rates when we convert them to traditional currencies like the US dollar. The price of one Bitcoin, say at $39,000, is similar to an exchange rate However, there are also some cryptocurrencies called stablecoins, for example, Tether, USDC, whose values are pegged to fixed exchange rates. Alex, why do we need stablecoins? The first one why they are used so much in practice is that it's, it's much easier to exchange stablecoins with free-floating cryptos than, than going the fiat route. So it, it's much easier than if you have Bitcoin to exchange that to tether and then exchange it again into ethereum in uh, one two days time than to to go through euros or us dollars or so forth another one is that just it's it's much easier to swap 
stable coins from uh, Kraken exchange to, to Coinbase or to another exchange then, then going the fiat route there as well. Where, where we see quite a bit of potential for it is just to give people access to, to stable currencies in countries where they might really want to have it. So like if, if you live in a country with very high levels of inflation, your, your savings are just going to evaporate in local currency. And so getting those people access to stable coins might help them preserve their, their wealth, give it a store of value function, particularly if the local government bans the, the use of US dollar and euro, which has happened before in the past. Got it. And how exactly do they work? Well, they're, they're packed by something and that peg has to be enforced there. There are different methods of doing that. One is that you just have a company that, that holds collateral. So if you exchange it with one US dollar, the company keeps that US dollar. And as soon as you change it back, the, the company is going to give you the US dollar back. So it's just a general collateral. But you could also have that collateral be done in crypto. And then you generally get a haircut. So if you exchange it for, uh, if you block Ethereum with it to get a US dollar, Packed stablecoin, then usually you only get a fraction of it, just so that uh, any sort of volatility is getting captured in that. And then the third one is uh, an algorithmic solution where the blockchain should by itself regulate the, the monetary supply and therefore enforce the peg. So as soon as it, uh, the peg shifts from $1 to $1.10, then the blockchain should just increase the money supply to bring the value back down and vice versa, of course. So those are the, the three ways that stablecoin work and uh, could potentially work. That's great, uh, Alex. Dan, by the way, we were speaking about crypto exchanges earlier. And in my crypto exchange, I see their US stablecoin is paying me 7% yearly interest. Begs the question, if they are pegged, how can they pay such high interest rates? In traditional markets, that would happen when the market doesn't believe the peg or there are some other risk factors lurking. What's your take? So I think, as we learned just now, stable coins are basically very great because they can move easily between different venues. Yeah? And that's why in a very free market, you quickly get to this uh, interesting situation where people will find opportunities to earn more than your 7%, right? So that means that eventually the 7% looks like a really good opportunity. If, if I need to fund my other activity that yields more than 7%, I'll just happily pay the 7%. That can happen because people are very successful in market making, for example. Also happens more and more in decentralized finance space where yields are often much higher than 7%. But what's also interesting, we saw that I think a couple of well, almost a month ago, when there was a big drop in the Bitcoin price, a lot of deleveraging happened. So these rates actually came down from, let's say, 55 to 6% on most exchanges to now something around 2.5%. So leverage definitely plays also plays a big role. Great. Now that we have the insights into the architecture, let's talk about the relevance of crypto assets from an investment standpoint. Alex, you've closely looked at the risk, return, and diversification properties of Bitcoin, Ether. What have you found? Well, everyone knows that uh, crypto has shot up massively in value, but just to highlight how spectacularly it has grown, if the, the first transactions that, were, that was made with Bitcoin is someone bought two pizzas, 
back in 2010. And that person paid 10,000 bitcoins for their pizza. So that's the equivalent of $400 million today. That was a pretty expensive pizza in, in hindsight. We, we've also looked at the, the risk associated with that. And that is uh, it's quite surprising because people, they tend to only really know the, the drawdown of 2018 and the very recent drawdown when it went up to 65K and then uh, down to 30K and it's now in the, the 40K region. But if you look at the, the history of Bitcoin over its a bit more than uh, 12 years time frame, you see three periods where the crypto lost more than 75%. Of its value, and so if you compare that with equities, you you have a drawdown every roughly four years that is on par with the biggest equity crisis you had over the last 125 years that coincided with the the Great Depression. So the, the returns were spectacular, but the risks were massive as well. So when you put those two things together. You actually end up with a risk-adjusted returns that, that isn't much higher than equities, like the, the sharp ratio that only is roughly at 1.6, while the IT stocks over the, the same 10-year time period was 1.5. So it very much puts that in perspective. Another point now on the, the risk-return thing is a lot of investors ask us, so is it kind of like the digital gold? And from a theoretical standpoint, we, we really see the argument it being not related to general economic activity and therefore potentially providing a diversification benefit. But when we looked at the last roughly five years and took all equity market corrections into account, on every single time that the stock market corrected by 10% or more globally, Bitcoin has dropped by 10% or more as well. So even though it sounds theoretically like it should be digital gold, empirically speaking, it has behaved much more like a risk on asset in the, the very limited period of time that we have could have observed it so far. Very interesting. What's your take, Dan? It's very challenging to look at these uh, risk-adjusted returns, and it depends a little bit on how you slice and dice it um, one data point is that I think over the last decade, Bitcoin has, on average, yielded 200% per year. So it's quite impressive, even if you account for these sharp drops. I think there's definitely asset class alpha. So there is a, an opportunity to add to your regular portfolio. And I think now US pension funds are picking up on that and allocating you know, between 1% and 5% to their mix. So, so these... Uh, interesting developments that maybe five years ago we wouldn't have thought could ever happen. Yeah, indeed. Talking about price behavior, we saw with a mixture of amusement and almost disbelief on how Dogecoin, that was designed as a meme, went through the hype cycle. Also, the impact of Elon Musk's tweet on Bitcoin have been rather intriguing. Alex, what should we make of the readiness of these assets in longer-term portfolios? When you speak about uh, Dogecoin and, and SafeMoon and, and all those other meme coins, well, for anybody who really loves trade, trading and gambling, uh, I think those kinds of people are going to find a lot of enjoyment in those extremely volatile things. 
in our assessment, those meme coins aren't really much more than just a redistribution game. And you might get rich with them, but you might also end up just being a bag holder in the end. Our take on it from a, a fundamental perspective is that we believe only things that are productive assets or that really serve a specific practical purpose, uh, like protecting against inflation or stuff like that, only those are really going to experience positive, sustainable, long-term appreciation. So if you want to trade the, the safe moons and the, the Doge coins and the, what have you coins, feel free, but we're not going to put that into uh, any uh, long-term portfolio anytime soon. Yeah, makes sense. So notwithstanding the fear of missing out, the memes, the lack of cash flows, can either of you or both of you, if you like, tell us, are there any metrics at all that can be useful starting points to assess the value of cryptocurrencies? Uh, let, let me just say that from our point of view, the, the very anticlimactic answer to that is there is no good fundamental way of, of trying to, to evaluate cryptos. Like the, the, the absolute majority of them, they're, they're not productive assets, so you, you can't really use a, a DCF model to discount cash flows. They aren't backed, the, the absolute majority of them, by, by any tangible value. So you can't really go to the fixed income route and uh, any sort of commodity production estimation also falls flat on its feet. So in the end, cryptos are, are just numbers and their, their value is determined, their price, but put it better, their price is determined by, by the network effect of the crypto. So, and that one is driven largely by market sentiment and there is just no good fundamental view of, of trying to gauge how market sentiment is going from, from a fundamental aspect. So what we try to, to offer at Julius Baer is that our team of technical analyst experts, they look at things like market breadth, momentum, and uh, other aspects that they put into their analysis that they can gauge from volume and price and so forth. And they then take that into account to make more short-term recommendations on the space. But yeah, so far we're, we're really looking at how can we add value to that process from a fundamental analysis perspective. And so far the answer is unfortunately and anticlimactically uh, rather limited. How about you then? Well, I think there's an interesting paper by William Kong who tries or gives it a shot to value tokens. And it's quite technical, but one thing that comes out of that paper is that the size of the community of a certain blockchain ecosystem really makes a difference. And then I just want to pick up on Alex's point earlier on inequality, right? So if there is less inequality with all of the participants on the network, that should also be have a positive impact on the network effect, actually. Super. Now... This is where I need your crystal balls to wrap things up in a sort of let's separate the myth from reality moment. Which parts of the space are deserving of the excitement and which parts are hype that will soon fizzle? And I'd like both your views, please. So I'm too old for meme coins, so no, no love for those. I do think it's fascinating how much attention they get, though. And as you grow older, I think it's also important to remain critical of ourselves and um, you know there might always be something that we don't understand 
But if I had to bet on something, I would definitely bet on decentralized smart contract platforms because they are really like the operating systems, if you like, of future economies in, in the blockchain world. Great. Alex? I'm, I'm going to go with a very similar take. So uh, there are not going to be any meme coins in uh, my personal portfolio anytime soon either. Fizzling out the entire NFT space as it currently stands, so the, the non-fungible token art deals you've seen recently. I think in its current form, that one is, is likely going to fizzle out. Now, something interesting might come out of it in the, in the longer term, more on uh, enforcing copyright and things like that. But the, the current form, in my take, is going to fizzle out. And concerning what is going to work in, in the future, my take is also going to be more on decentralized smart contract-based platforms. So places where blockchain and crypto can, can really add value and, and bring a tangible benefit to people's lives, like solving the problem that remittance payments usually are extremely costly or that settlements in, in stock markets usually take like T plus three days, which shouldn't be uh, an issue today anymore. And so also the aspect where, where I see the biggest promise are in those areas where decentralized smart contract-based platforms try to solve real-world problems. Not the meme coins, not those kinds of things, but the actual things where people sit together in a room and think, how can we use that to, yeah, to solve world's problems, to make it a better place? Very, very useful and also uplifting end. Thank you, Alex. And thank you, Dan, for the very, very engaging conversation. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, in summary for our second episode. The future success of blockchain lies in how the technologies can better address the trilemma of scalability, of safety, and of decentralization. Part of the answer lies in the consensus mechanisms, the beating heart of the blockchain, as Alex puts it. Proof of work is the dominant mechanism now, but might lose ground to proof of stake in the future. The cryptocurrency market is highly concentrated, with Bitcoin and Ethereum taking clear leadership positions. So far, Bitcoin has strongly correlated with equities during market downturns putting the diversification argument into somewhat of a question. It has also exhibited risk characteristics that are much higher than the absolute majority of investment vehicles, making Bitcoin primarily a speculative investment, but not yet a store of value. So Dan is right, we should challenge ourselves, but it seems like on the balance of the findings, while cryptocurrencies are very exciting, by themselves probably not there yet as the future of money and of data. However, there is a far, far more important aspect to blockchain than cryptocurrencies that both of you have mentioned. The very interesting part relates to decentralized finance or DeFi. These are financial applications with possibilities that sit on top of smart contracts and tokens. We will explore DeFi and other blockchain applications and ask whether they can be the future of money and of data in our next and final podcast of this series. Till then, stay tuned. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. 
The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.